Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, creator of The Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is The Left Pocket Project podcast. Today's episode is a reading revolution discussion in which Richard and I will be covering a set of interviews from 2005 with Angela Davis entitled Abolition Democracy. I'll get a bit into Angela Davis's background in just a moment, but in the meantime, make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast via SoundCloud, Spreaker, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. Also, don't forget to check us out on social media and visit our Patreon page where all of our content is always free. You can get free books like the one we're reading for today's episode, as well as additional resources. And just as a reminder, if you like what we do, give us a follow, a retweet, and a donation of a dollar or more per month. All of our content is free, and we hope to always keep it that way. But every little bit helps to keep the project going. All of the funds we receive from you go back into the project. We pay our assistants, we pay for data storage, and we pay our guests in addition to making a donation in their honor. There's also a lot of time and effort that we put into the project, so we greatly appreciate any and all assistance from both current and future patrons. You can visit us by going to patreon.com slash leftpoc, and of course you can find us everywhere else by searching for leftpoc, and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C. Now on to Davis, whose biography is impossible to summarize, but I'll focus on an overview and aspects of her life that most informed her analysis in the interviews that we read. Angela Davis is a communist thinker and longtime activist. Davis was born in Birmingham, Alabama in 1944. While growing up, she, her family, and her black peers faced intense racism, segregation, and related violence that marked the origins of her lifelong struggle for justice. As a result of her mother's organizing work and the presence of communist activists in her hometown, Davis was exposed to leftist thought from a very early age. She was a budding activist, and even as a young Girl Scout, she protested racial segregation. She later went on to attend high school in New York City by way of an American Friends Services Committee exchange program and became involved in activist work with a communist youth organization. She went on to attend Brandeis University on a scholarship as one of the school's few black students. While in college, she continued to protest racism and U.S. imperialism abroad. She worked with Marxist professor Herbert Marcuse while still at Brandeis and later continued to grad school in Germany, where she was exposed to East Germany's implementation of communism at the state level. Davis then returned to the U.S. in the mid-1960s to continue her graduate work at the University of California, San Diego, while Marcuse was still her advisor. During these trips, Davis interacted with multiple black and communist organizations, often lamenting what she saw as the dismissal of left ideology by some black leaders. It was around this time that she became more closely involved with the Communist Party of the U.S., specifically its black groups, which had an internationalist focus and expressed support for leaders of the third world. She was also a prominent feminist involved with the Black Panther Party. In 1969, she became a professor at UCLA, but was fired shortly after, first for being a communist, and then later, after an appeal through which she was able to resume her post, fired again for supposedly, quote, inflammatory language, end quote. In 1970, Davis found herself on the FBI's most wanted list after providing arms to the Jackson brothers, one of whom, George Jackson, is a known left thinker in his own right, who used the weapons to hold a courthouse hostage. 
Several people died in the exchange, and Davis, as a previous owner of the weapons, was charged as being involved in the planning and execution of the incident. She lived as a fugitive for months, but was eventually arrested and imprisoned. Her arrest and the conditions of her imprisonment sparked an international campaign for her freedom. While Davis was already a well-known feminist and communist activist at the time, her arrest, subsequent trial, and the interviews she gave during her imprisonment made her a household name. She was acquitted in 1972 and went on to travel around the world, most notably to Cuba, East Germany, and the USSR, to express solidarity with communist nations in the struggle against U.S. imperialism and racism. Upon her return to the U.S., she resumed her work as a professor and continued to give speeches about politics, feminism, and a variety of social issues. She has co-founded multiple organizations, including Critical Resistance, which advocates for prison abolition. And she remains connected to her comrades around the world by way of her writing, lectures, and support for multiple campaigns for political prisoners, colonized peoples, women, and the environment. In our discussion for this episode, Richard and I talk about the 2005 work Abolition Democracy, Beyond Empire, Prisons, and Torture, which is a set of interviews of Davis conducted by Eduardo Mendieta, a Colombian-American professor who works on critical theory, urbanization, and Latin American philosophy. Please see the show notes for additional information about Davis, as well as links to some of the references we make throughout the show. Enjoy. So hi, everyone. It's Wendy and Richard. Hello. Um, sorry, I sound a little lackluster with my voice today, but some of you who've been following me, um, at least on my personal account, know that I'm preggers, and that means that sometimes I'm a little low energy, nauseated, and the like. Uh, but today, we're, I'm going to try to pull up some energy for our discussion today because it's we read a really fascinating set of interviews um, by Angela Davis, and I think they for for those of you who are able to read along and for those of you who listen to our discussion you'll find that many of the things that she brings up are super relevant remain relevant and somewhat feel like i don't know i mean it feels like the things she says throughout the book um are common knowledge at this point at least among amongst activists and like people on twitter who are woke and whatnot um but i think at the time that she was saying this which is around 2005 2004 um there is I don't know. It wasn't as it wasn't as common um, in our everyday language and rhetoric. Um, definitely not in the press, and even within you know some quote unquote liberal circles, even academic circles, this this type of discussion was maybe a little bit um, how should I put this? Like minimized, I would say, and overlooked. Um, and so it's nice to go back and kind of read these things and see that Angela Davis has always been one of the people a bit ahead of the curve, um, and I think also sort of announcing things that it's a shame that we didn't pay more attention to at the time that they were happening, but I think that can still be applied now um, in terms of our analysis and that we see actually often applied and discussed now. Um, But people don't attribute stuff to her, which is unfortunate. Like people don't say, oh yeah, this is from Angela Davis. We don't see a lot of that, but we see a lot of people saying things that she says in this text. Yeah, definitely. I, uh, I think, a lot of the ideas that we saw uh, expressed in the text have been incorporated into mainstream leftist rhetoric uh, in a variety of ways. And some of it has been co-option, but a lot of it is just kind of taken as, well, this is just obviously and apparently true. So uh-huh. it, it, I think perhaps that's possibly why some of uh, it, it just gets incorporated rather than uh, accredited in that people, once they hear it, they just think of it as as a natural observation. But uh, I think uh, uh, 
for instance, you know, cite Black Women as a great resource uh, and and has focused on the point of trying to bring and highlight the contributions of Black women, and it even comes up in the text uh, mm-hmm. as well. Uh, so uh, I think it's uh, definitely an important point uh, to bring up. It's also interesting too that the text actually opens with her discuss like discussing that she's still a communist. So even though she's she because she ran for vice president um, for like vice president of the United States um, under the Communist Party uh, back in the day. And then she's no longer affiliated with the party, but she still says that she considers herself a communist. And I just think it's interesting. I point this out just because a lot of people downplay um, her communism and like she was a hardcore communist, you know, like literally communist. And I think sometimes because we have this sort of glorification of the image of activism, but not the activism itself, or we have a glorification of the activist as a person, but not necessarily their politics. Like people are less aware of the fact, for example, that so many Black Panthers were communists and many of them Marxist-Leninist forms of communists. Um, but that kind of that gets downplayed because it's just like the image of Angela Davis, the idea of Angela Davis means something to people. But I think fewer people nowadays engage, even though she's still alive, um, engage with the politics of her legacy and like what she actually says and continues to say, um, which is unfortunate. You know, I think that this this happens with a lot of famous people and famous people who who do good for their communities. Um, but a lot of the I don't know, the memory gets distorted in terms of what they actually stood for and stand continue to stand for sometimes um, in in lieu of the symbolism, you know, the Che T-shirts. uh as as a great example of that you know like a lot of people were i I even bought one without really understanding what it meant and it actually did eventually inspire me to read some autobiographical texts and so on and so forth and it was part of the beginning journey to to communism leftism in general for me so you can wear it with pride now because you know what it means right exactly yeah it's it's actually it's way better that way too and so like (laughs) it's i can definitely appreciate the kind of separation of the imagery from the political ideologies and the and what those people represented beyond just the superficial kind of aspect and the other thing that comes to my mind is you know how uh, like there was the dodge commercial that took a, a martin luther king jr excerpt and kind of and basically totally distorted and destroyed its meaning mm-hmm. but just basically used his iconic voice and like uh the the resonance that he has socially to basically push the opposite of what was even being mentioned in the full context of the the excerpt and so like i i think that that's a prevalent issue that it, specifically with imagery and then also with just the the kind of uh, pomp and circumstance or presentation of a lot of uh prominent uh, radicals uh, as turned into more of a, a commercial identity than an ideological one so yeah, so just thinking about structure, because we did this, we talked about making the structure for this discussion a little bit different, because it's not necessarily done in like, you know, like normal order with chapters and things like that. It's not a, a book in that sense. It's a set of interviews. So it's a set of four, I believe four or five interviews total um, that she did over the course of, seems like maybe a year or so with this particular researcher um, whom I've discussed in the intro. Um, and I think 
because of that, it may be easier for us to kind of discuss it on the basis of themes as opposed to going through the book chronologically, like, you know, from beginning to end, um, because then we would just end up being very repetitive because um, even though each interview is based on a slightly different topic, obviously there are some things that she reiterates or she brings up again um, that come up multiple times. And so to avoid redundancy, um, we're going to discuss it around several themes. And so I'll just go over those themes now and then we'll break down like, you know, how we're going to how we'll talk about it. Um, the first of them is sort of the, we already talked about her communism and that background and what that means. Um, but I think one of the other areas where we see a real insertion of her sort of political ideology is discuss the discussion around globalization versus nationalism um, and how, because at the time of the, the interviews, there was a really big discussion going on within activists and, and academic circles about um, the World Trade Organization, World Bank, IMF, kind of like what the meaning of those organizations was, but then also this idea of globalization. Like I remember, I mean, I'm old, but I was an adult when all this stuff was happening. And like, I specifically remember um, around that time that there were so many books out and like criticism and discussion around the idea of globalization. Now that discussion has been severely distorted by virtue of Republicans um, and far right types that turn it into a discussion of globalism, um, which has a very different meaning and like has racial connotations and things like that. So we can talk about that later. But um, she does talk about that a bit and sort of how her communism fits into these discussions about, um, you know, the way the world has changed and maybe what things have not changed at all. Um, the other thing that we're going to talk about is the way what carcerality means um, and how there's so much violence that comes out of the idea of carcerality um, and how that violence and even the construction of the carceral state is one that's a racialized um, construction, one that's rooted in slavery and oppression of um, Black people and subsequently other people of color um, in this country. And also, of course, Indigenous people um, from the jump in the United States. Um, we're going to talk a bit about the links between the prison industrial complex and the military industrial complex, which I thought was a really fascinating discussion because, again, so relevant to the present, especially as both complexes expand exponentially, like as we as we were reading this. Um, the other thing that was a theme throughout, uh, there's this sort of tension and debate between the ideas of Frederick Douglass and those of W.E.B. Du Bois around the idea of um, imprisonment and the subsequent imprisonment of black people after slavery was abolished. Um, then the other issue that we're gonna discuss is what abolition means for someone like Davis, uh, prison abolition, but also this idea that she gets from Du Bois called abolition democracy and like how that, what that means and how that applies. Um, we're also gonna talk a lot about imperialism and empire, something that she discusses throughout, especially um, because at the time she was doing the interviews uh, the Abu Ghraib uh, controversy had just come out. So we'll get into that a little bit. Um, and then I think the last the last bit of, I don't know, the discussion that will be um, one that I think will resonate with a lot of people nowadays is this idea of the distortion of identity politics for the use of sort of more conservative um, political ideologies and how women and people of color and mar trad traditionally marginalized groups identities can unfortunately be used um, in order to uphold very dangerous and harmful um, institutions and just like basic ideologies in this country and, and elsewhere. Um, so we'll get into those discussions. Those are our themes. And then maybe we'll wrap up a little bit with like where 
Davis is now in her ideology because there have been some slight changes, um, not necessarily to her, the things that she asserts throughout this set of interviews, but in general, right? Like how she is as a person, uh, because as I mentioned in the intro, she's someone who we would definitely point to and say, you know, is a radical and has a radical history, but whether or not that sort of radicalism has been maintained with all of the changes, um, you know, in terms of neoliberalism and the like is, is worth further discussion. So Richard, yeah, why don't you, uh, <laughs> oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, I think there's also just an aspect of, you know, like what we think and believe versus how we act. And right. like, and uh, I think that it, it, it brings the interesting aspect of that to, to light. So, but go ahead. Theory versus praxis. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. We need both, right? Yeah. Yeah. As, as Freddie once said, you got to combine those two things. He didn't say it like that. He said it much better, but you know, flashback to Freddie. Um, so yeah, Richard, why don't you pick a theme or like start us off where you went in, with one of the ideas that you thought was most resonant for you? All right. Uh, let's see here. One of the things I like, I think one of the things that initially leapt out to me that she established was the the deep and consistent role that carcerality has played in the formation and existence of the United States and like how uh, it's a reflection and a uh, an example and kind of a uh, like what's the word like a progenitor of the social circumstances that we find around uh, oppressed people in the United States. And that, and then also she makes the point globally as well uh, that like we've formed a society that is deeply rooted in a, a fundamental understanding that is reliant on a punitive uh, relationship with uh or with those that we deem in society as you know undesirable for one reason or another whether it's behavioral or uh sociological or phenotypical in how they look mm -hmm. and so like just how deeply entrenched that is in every aspect uh and uh, and she mentions plenty but then i started to make connections myself as far as like just how 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 deep it is and then also just how the the violence and the uh the this the horribleness of it all uh is so deeply entrenched in the racist origins of the united states as well it's like the, the connection between those two was uh more profound than i had previously given credit like i the prison industrial complex is a a phrase that i like you said has kind of just become part of the the lexicon and uh, you know, she argues the importance of and why that's it's a term that she uses. And like I had thought about those things a little bit, but the one thing that I think really left out to me was just how deeply ingrained and how uh, kind of foundational the the understanding of punitive and carceral uh, treatments uh, are to resolving social problems and mm -hmm. how critical, like challenging that notion is. Uh, beyond just any of the anecdotal or individual circumstances that we find uh, individuals in within these structural uh, systems. 
I mean, I think it's uh, Du Bois actually who opens one of his texts by saying like, what does it feel like to be a problem in with regard to mm-hmm. black people in America, right? Um, and I think, you know, in his text, he's talking a lot about slavery. And I think that goes back again to what you were saying about social problems, because as Angela Davis discusses throughout, right? Like the answer to every social problem in America is always punishment. It's all, I mean, even if we think about, for example, I keep seeing stories of children whose parents, or I guess the children themselves owe lunch debt. And so they're not eligible to get free lunch or something if they owe debt at school. Like it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, I'm like, you're punishing children for being poor, basically, you know, you're punishing children and their parents for being poor. And why is punishment always, you know, the, the go-to response instead of compassion. And she argues that part of that is rooted or in large part rooted in the fact that so many of these punishments were meted out against slaves. And slaves, of course, in the United slavery in general in the United States was a extremely racialized practice. Um, And so if you think about, you know, if the punishment is going to happen against someone who is black and thus in this society dehumanized, seen as other, um, then, it's not seen as something that could potentially happen to you, right? It's this foreign idea, mm-hmm. this thing that's beyond the self. And so I think that for her, you know, even things like she, she talks a lot about um, capital punishment too. So the death penalty um, on page 27, she mentioned, she sort of bridges the links between slavery and death penalty. And she says basically that, you know, the death penalty, even when it was abolished in certain states, remained on the books for slaves, right? So if a slave mm-hmm. committed a, a crime, whatever that crime was, I mean, the crime could have literally been seeking his or her freedom. Um, but that, again, goes it goes into another discussion she has about the construction of what criminality is and how even that is racialized. Um, but I think that this idea about, you know, making it so that it's an exception, it's an exceptional practice that then becomes incorporated to become a universalized practice. So it, and by that, I mean, death penalty can apply to white people and black people. But she mentions that like you, you can't get around the fact that the majority of people who are dying under the death penalty are black. The majority of people in terms of, of rates, right, rates of imprisonment um, are disproportionately black. So that makes a difference in terms of what we think about in terms of the connections of slavery and racialized and punishment today. But I also really quickly, um, the other thing that when I was reading this, I immediately thought of the book uh, that came out a few years, I'm going to say like 10 years ago or so about this. Um, I'm not thinking of Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, although she certainly makes connections that are coming from, uh, stemming from things that Angela Davis says in this text. But I'm thinking about, there was a book that came out um, that uh, that was specifically about slavery and mass incarceration and it linked the two. Do you remember what I'm, do you know what I'm talking I think Slavery by Another Name might be the name of the book. Um, I'll link it in the screen. Does it sound familiar to you? I'm trying to think I'm, I'm this is not going to be my strength, so. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. No, I, but it's, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I know that there was a book that came out um, a few years ago that was about, that made a direct link between enslavement and the mass incarceration problem in the U.S. Um, and they talk a lot about how slave patrols and policing were, are, are based, you know, policing is a, is a result of slave patrols. Um, and the prison industrial complex is very similar to, or like engages in practice that was practices, excuse me, that were similar to those um, practiced upon enslaved people's 
but I mention it just because I, again, I think that like all of these ideas that she's talking about at the time, you see a lot of books popping up as well that also discuss this. So I'll put both uh, Michelle Alexander's and this other book that I can't, I believe is called Slavery by Another Name, but I will double check that. That um, does I'll look right, just a cursory uh, about the re-enslavement of Black Americans from the Civil War to World exactly. War II. Exactly. By, uh, um, so I'll Douglas put those Black. both in the show notes and I'll see if I, I know, I know Michelle Alexander's book is probably available free somewhere and this other book should be too, but I'll try to, I'll try to link both of them in the show notes just so that people can, if they have the time or energy or interest, um, can go and look at this further because there's a PBS documentary uh, oh, that yeah. should be available on YouTube as well. So if that's awesome. audio visual is more people's style. Cool. So yeah, I'll link, we'll link both of those uh, or all of those, I should say in the show notes. Um, but yeah, I think that, I think that basically what she's saying in this about this is the fact that like once something is practiced on black people at the time of slavery and it's seen as like othered or it's, it's seen as an exceptional practice, right? People, and I think we could say the exact same thing about like police brutality, right? People look at it and say, that's a black problem, right? That's not my problem. I don't need to focus on that, whatever. But then eventually those practices become incorporated into a general punitive model that does affect everyone. It may not affect everyone equally as we've already established, um, but it does affect it does, people, especially like poor white people, for example, are subject to this kind of violence um, in ways that perhaps, you know, we know that wealthy people are not, wealthy white people in particular are not. Um, and that's why it's much easier for the society to forget about it or to not see it as something that's worthy of discussion. And I mean, we can we can go into this further when we talk about Abu Ghraib because she talks about the, the making private of the carceral system that further creates this distance where people can kind of separate themselves from what's actually happening and then no longer think about it if they don't have to, you know, they're not affected by it. Yeah, and I think uh, you met, what you talk about there also kind of captures essentially, in my view, a kind of, uh, I don't know if this is going to be the greatest uh, terminology, but kind of a, like rather than a reexamination of the practice of, let's say, capital punishment, uh, when it starts to apply to white people, they, the white people are just uh, marginalized in a similar, though not equal way to basically put them on pars. Well, they deserve it because they're basically like those other people that mm -hmm. it's OK to do it to. They're, mm -hmm. they're basically the same. It's like, yeah, they're white, but, you know, they're not really white. Like. They're like criminals, you know, they're mm -hmm. poor. They, they did something to deserve it, basically, is what happens. Like, yeah, black people automatically deserve it, but these white people who are also punished in this way did something to then merit that kind I of I think the word criminal, I think, something like captures it perfectly in that what it does is, is like it conjures an image of a black person in a lot of people's mind. Mm -hmm. and, and then so you can attach it to a white person. And then so they, it, it, it's, there's still a psychological connection between. You know, it's like, oh, it, like a criminal is a black person and the treatment uh, meted out to black people can be worse than what I would allow for me. And so that this white person is getting that treatment must mean that they're a criminal, not that something like this is happening to someone like me. Mm -hmm. It's like, again, the exception to the rule, right? Mm -hmm. or the, other, the other person, it's their problem. It's not something that I have to worry about because I don't commit crimes. Exactly. But again, like how is criminality defined and enforced? Mm. And we know that that is just for us, for many black people, it's just like existing is a crime. You know, you're and walking to school or whatever. I was just going to say specifically during uh, 
Davis's uh, most radical movement or moments during the the civil rights movement, uh, you know, that was a, a like a real time experience slash issue in that. Uh, uh, I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. That's okay. I mean, I would just say it is now too, though. Like, if you think about things like stop and frisk, right? Stop mm-hmm. and frisk is on. It's literally exists on the basis of black people and particularly black men in this case, other women, black women are also affected by stop and frisk. Um, but with an added sexual harassment component, which exactly Davis touches on. Exactly. And so I think that there's, there's this idea that like, just by virtue of existing black people are criminals, you know, like you cannot be in a public space without being questioned for, you know, about your legitimacy. I mean, literally I just, before we got on the call today, I said, mm-hmm. we were talking about this because I had, a random woman who's the owner of a house next to my house asked me as I went outside to walk my dog, if I owned my house, I was asked by, it was, she was a white woman who said, Oh, did you buy that house? And I'm like, yes, but why is that your business? You know, like, why are you asking me that? And I don't think she would have asked um, a, a white person if he or she owned the house that they were stepping out of, you know, like it's, it's the assumption that I don't belong um, and that there's something foreign or different or inappropriate about me my existing in a space with her or with people like her, you know, like it's, it's a very blatant example of that. Um, even though obviously like I wasn't in physical danger, thank God, but you know, if you're talking about police doing the same thing, yeah, you're just, you're automatically perceived as not belonging and thus criminal, um, yeah, violating and, some sort of rule. And we know that from, uh, now looking back that the drug war and was, is, intentionally designed to criminalize political dissent essentially they're dissenters and so like there's just kind of a passive ambient kind of aspect and then a like a deliberate and focused effort to criminalize essentially being black and not uh, uh being not not conforming to the system that wants to oppress you mm-hmm the other thing that she talks about too that I think I thought was like really resonant and completely relevant today, especially as we're seeing some of these laws get overturned, but it's the idea that, you know, after imprisonment, the former prisoner, formerly incarcerated person is still punished. And that's deemed as acceptable by the society because it's like, despite the fact that we have this saying about someone paying their debts to society by going to prison or like going to prison for the sake of self-reformation or whatever, um, you know, like they say rehab, rehabilitation, right? Um, but the idea is that like you're never fully rehabilitated in the eyes of society. So even if you quote unquote serve your time, once you're out in many states, you cannot vote. In many states, you cannot get a job. In many states, you may not be eligible even to apply to college. And if you do apply to college, you have to check a box. Like NYU recently got rid of that um, as a requirement. So if you were formerly incarcerated, you no longer have to indicate that you were on your college application. Like this is how it should be everywhere. But, um, but then there's also, you know, again, like in Florida, they recently got rid of uh, the law that banned uh, formerly incarcerated people from voting within a certain time period. But at the same time, now they're like trying to overturn the overturning of that law. So there's all, there are always just constant challenges to the right. And I I should add too, like, um, I know Bernie Sanders had been for a minute. I don't know. I haven't heard him talk about it recently, but I know for a minute he was talking about the option of giving incarcerated, like currently incarcerated people the right to vote. 
and the mainstream press are just freaking out about it. And it's like, why? You know, like just because you're in prison shouldn't mean that you lose all of your rights as a human being as an, and as a citizen of this country, right? Um, and so it's, she, she emphasizes that there's this continual process of punishment in a way that robs you of your like social value. She talks a lot about that, where it, it takes away, it's a type of disenfranchisement that's not just a matter of, okay, it might be hard to get a job or it might be hard to go to school, but it's like you literally lose all of your rights while you're within prison and you lose all of your rights while you're beyond prison. And then that is also racialized because it then furthers you know, the forms of discrimination that Black people are already impacted by and sort of magnifies them tenfold because then, you know, like you, you lose these things by law as well. It's not just de facto, but it's de jour at that point. Yeah, and the cyclical and kind of uh, feedback mechanism, I think, is important that you mentioned there as well. It's like, you know, it's like that they feed into the stereotypes. It's like, well, let's criminalize blackness. And it's like, okay, mm -hmm. so now this black person's a criminal. And then I was like, now let's uh, exclude them from society. So then, oh, that black person doesn't want to participate in society, doesn't have a job, doesn't do these things. So that's another, the, more individual failings to then justify the readmittance back into the criminal, the, the criminal industrial complex or the prison industrial complex. And then if they ever do get back out, it's just right back in and it, it's a cycle so that perpetual incarceration is the only righteous and just conclusion for this, uh, you know, uh, I guess uh, the, this person bound to criminality uh, right. in the view of society from, uh, you know, as a result of individual choices. But we look uh, from a systemic perspective uh, that we realize that their criminality is a result of the systems in place around them. And, and sometimes those, I pointed out with the drug war, specifically uh, intended to target and criminalize them for political dissent. So it was like, it runs the gamut from kind of a, a more passive result of these other systems that are at play. And then there's also a component of proactive and concerted efforts to uh, like take these already existing tendencies in society and amplify and target them even more specifically and effectively. Right. I think she, I mean, she has a section too, where she talks about fear, um, which again is, is very common in our discussions nowadays. You know, like I feel like even after uh, around the film, like Bowling for Columbine and everyone was talking about, you know, drug, um, gun violence and how that's so rooted in people's fear of the other. Um, and I think that, you know, this discussion about carcerality is also, as she argues, very rooted in fear, not just fear of, not, it's not just an, an idea of like wanting to be safe, but as she argues, it's the idea of wanting to feel safe. So, um, you know, like, gosh, I feel like I keep talking about anecdotal things related to my neighborhood, but like I was invited to this like neighborhood related kind of digital social media group recently. Um, and I was going through some of the posts and like, several of the people who were, it was like predominantly white uh, people on the site were talking about um, not feeling safe in the neighborhood. And I'm like, I live in one of the safest neighborhoods in all of Baltimore. Um, but this idea is that like, for them, it seems that if they see a black person, that's enough to not feel safe. You know, like if you look at the crime rate in the area, it's very low, like there's hardly any crime. I walk around at night, I walk my dog at night, you know, my husband walks the dog, like there's no issue, there are no issues. We've never felt threatened or unsafe. And I, I mean, I'm not, not to negate other people's experiences because whatever, maybe they have experienced things that I have not, so whatever. But from the way that these were written, 
it felt like mainly the threat for them was poor black people, you know, just existing, just coming to the neighborhood to do anything uh, made them feel unsafe. And I think that that, that exaggerated um, concern over certain bodies, you know, certain people's bodies signify greater danger than others. Um, and we know what that means. You know, we know that that in this country is racialized. She even talks about um, the way the threat of the the so-called black rapist was something that, again, went into this extreme um, push for for not only lynchings, but then later on mass incarceration. Right. Um, because she talks about the ways that lynching sort of operated as a an extra statal um, or extra. It was sort of like an extrajudicial measure. But it was even though it wasn't specifically an act specifically affiliated to the state, the people who engaged in these lynchings, who would you know crowd around and watch them or actually commit them, saw themselves as fulfilling the needs of the state and or the the duties of the state when the state had failed. You know, like the state mm -hmm. didn't kill enough black people, so we're going to take care of it. We're going to make our neighborhoods safe by getting rid of these people. Um, and I think that there's still that that kind of hyped up fear still resonates with a lot of people because I think there's still so many, and you look at like the murder of Mike Brown and what Darren Wilson, who was the police officer who shot him, murdered him in cold blood said, you know, he said, well, he seemed, he's, he exaggerated his physical presence, you know? And often when we see, when we hear the testimonies of these police who murder black people um, in cold blood, that's often what they say. Well, he was big. He was coming after me. He was overpowering me, you know, I'm like, look like a, a demon. Gun? Like. Yeah. Yeah. Like you have a freaking gun. Like how is, how is someone overpowering you just by standing there? You have a gun, you know, like it, it's unrealistic, but it's, it's based on these very old fears that are rooted in slavery and sexual anxieties and all of this stuff and stereotypes about black men and black women as well, because black women are also often portrayed as more masculine, larger, animalistic um, in ways that make us a perceived physical threat when there may need maybe no threat at all you know well yeah um, and it's if we think about fear just for a moment then it's like if you go to a scary movie you can be scared even though you're not in any actual danger right right and so like i think that what you're bringing attention to is the disconnect between uh the fear that we have and then the actual threats that we experience and i think now we definitely have uh, the statistics to to be able to look on it and with some more insight and be able to show demonstrably that you're more likely to be like the people that threaten you the most are the people around you and the people that are around you are generally friends and family and acquaintances right. like so most of the threats that you'll experience will come from those circles not from some outside person especially not from somebody like in another country she says that too she says that like so much of the hyped up fears around quote-unquote terrorism are like so far away that it's not really as much of a concern that people think the other thing she talks about too is like the ways that domestic violence are downplayed um when that's like the home is supposed to feel safe right and as you mentioned like your acquaintances your family members your friends are supposed to be you know like your your go-to place your safe space or whatever but then there's mm -hmm. the issue of domestic violence that's not discussed nearly as much uh, as like outsider violence you know like commits acts of violence committed by strangers are far less likely you know when you're dealing with with questions like that and you take um, a little more stuff with you know 
people in positions of authority committing domestic violence with the the police being you know predominant or like being disproportionately uh, shown to commit domestic violence compared to the rest of the population and military former military as well mm-hmm. actually um i think there's a direct connection between i mean again she draws these connections so i'm not saying anything new exactly. um, but she also talks about the fact uh later uh, she mentions a man who was a torturer at a uh, black site. I can't remember if it was Abu Ghraib or another uh, black site, but she mentions that he used to be a prison guard and how he basically not, she says there's not necessarily a direct line between what he did. Cause we didn't, she, there's no, there's no information about what he did when he was a prison guard. Right. But who knows? Um, so she says there may have been, you can kind of come to your own conclusions about the violence that he committed towards incarcerated uh, people from the Middle East in these black sites versus what he may have done to prisoners in the U.S. The only difference, though, is that when Abu Ghraib blew up, when there was an expose of the photos and things, for those who may not remember, who may have been much younger, um, there was a period of time in the in like 2004 uh, where photos came out showing uh, U.S. military personnel who were um, overseas, who were guards at the Abu Ghraib facility um, detention camp uh basically torturing um ridiculing sexually harassing um sexually assaulting in some cases um inmates there people who were incarcerated there against their will they don't have any hobbyist corpus so they couldn't get attorneys um and they were just held indefinitely there and being tortured um and this guy was one who had he had put like razor blades in people's food um he had engaged in beatings and things like that and so if you're seeing that come out for a lot of people that was a big shock you know and people were like oh my god i can't believe there was you know like i'm again laughing because it's just like the naivete is ridiculous because i think you have to come from a very sheltered place to believe that or i guess not know about slave history or violence against indigenous people or whatever jim crow in this country to think that the u.s would be some sort of arbiter of peace um and never engage in violence towards other people But anyway, people were shocked when they saw the images and couldn't believe that the U.S. military was engaging in practices like this towards people from other countries. um, We went there to liberate them, right? Right, yeah, and to spread democracy, which she, I love because she, I love the way she talks about this because she, and maybe we can go into this later on, but the way she talks Mm -hmm. about how they commodify democracy and use it almost like a product, you know, like, again, like very well in line with the U.S.'s capitalism, Right or hyper-capitalism in our case, mm-hmm. um, but to see democracy not as something that you develop on your own as a country, but something that can be exported, forced upon others, or sold. Um, and it's a defective product, ultimately, the way that we are we are marketing and selling it, obviously. Um, but it's a guise. It's, it's not real, mm-hmm. but it's used in a way that's a you know faulty product endorsement. Um, but anyway, going back to this, the, the people were shocked um, and surprised to see that the U.S. was engaging in these practices, and it's like, but don't be like, why are you shocked? You know, and, and I don't think she's she's not like angry at people who are shocked, but she's just saying like, this is fully in line with what the U.S. has always done and continues to do to its own citizens as well. Like, it's not new that people are being tortured and detained against their will and for no reason and undergoing severe degrees of violence by the state. Um, and I think we can even argue it today, like when we talk about detention camps, concentration camps at the border of, you know, people who are migrating from very dire circumstances that the U.S. has helped enact. Um, 
and had a direct hand in, but we don't talk as much about like, we see that violence and we see that neglect and we say, that's awful. How could the U S do this? You know, how, why are we doing this? And then, but you point to prisons and you say, what about those people? Like, why is it not discussed in the same way? And again, it goes back to the, the construction of criminality. Certain people are seen automatically as criminals in some people's eyes and others are not. And so for Republicans, they see both. They see both Latinos who are coming from Latin America, Honduras, Central America, wherever, you know, El Salvador to the United States as criminals just automatically, even though many of them are just looking for refuge. But they see that act of like, stepping, abor- stepping upon our shores as a criminal act. And so therefore they legitimize the detention and torture of these people in these camps the same way that they do for black people and, and Latinos in prison in the United States. Whereas I think Democrats and liberals are somewhat reluctant to do that to the migrant community, but I don't th- you don't hear as much language around the ways that those camps and the prisons that we have had in the United States forever are very comparable in their treatment of um, the incarcerated people there. You don't hear that as much from liberals, but Republicans and, and people on the far right obviously see them all as criminals, so it doesn't matter, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think uh, she also raises a good point that that kind of carries on with this of how uh, one is a continuation of the other in that, like, talks about how Clinton apologized for the Tuskegee experiments where they gave black people syphilis on purpose and then didn't or and then didn't give them treatment and told them that they were when they had available treatment. So if you're not familiar with that, it's horrid. And it went on right up and through there. There's still like it. There's people alive that remember it happening. So mm-hmm. for <laughs> like, uh, and then uh, also tried to apologize for uh, slavery or whatever, but that she says it also paved the way for Bush to come in and do what he did with his policies. And the kind of example that she uses is, uh, or says that people identified with Clinton, progressives identified with Clinton. Uh, and didn't recognize a need for organized opposition. Mm-hmm. And so like the the anti-war movement didn't have the strength it needed to prevent an Iraq and had the had people progressives recognize the shortcomings of Clinton, then uh, perhaps the organizational uh, structures could have been created and grown so that then when it was come time to oppose something like the invasion of Iraq, there was a movement that was prepared and uh, had the rhetoric and ideologies necessary to to effectively combat what was being pushed uh, nationally with like the nationalism and all of those aspects of it. And I definitely see the connection to that today where with like we have the detention camps uh, on the border and some inland as well. Uh, and how those weren't something that uh, Trump had to manifest out of thin air. All he had to do was expand the ones that we didn't have a vigorous opposition towards, or at least not vigorous enough in progressive and liberal circles while they were being administered by the Obama administration. And and so like that connection of not holding uh, our champions accountable, leading towards more basically villains have being more effective in uh, advancing policies and ambitions contrary to our goals are connected and that recognizing that connection is is important for preventing whatever's next you know it's like there's something happening right now 
that uh, liberals are positioned in a way that is going to advance and embolden the conservative agenda. And it's uh, on the responsibility of those to, the, to their left to be preparing and organizing uh, to counter that. And I might not know exactly what it's going to be today, but uh, I'm, I'm sure if we examine long enough and look close enough that we'll, we can see the patterns and see, see what's coming. And so it's that stuck out to me as an, an incredibly important aspect of it. And one of the other things that we've touched on several times and comes to my mind is the kind of how we, the acceptance of the brutality towards prisoners and uh, John Oliver for all of his uh, fallibility had a, or his writer, came like mentioned you know essentially and forgive the crude crudeness of it but like talked about uh rape in prison and that like if people found out one out of 12 donuts was getting raped uh, that they bought they would freak out but they find out like the that raid is happening at in prison or greater rates and it's just well that's you know the criminals and so on and so forth so they they give more credence and like they empathize more with a donut and their, their experience of eating it than they do with another human being being uh, brutally uh, raped. And that, that that is another theme that I think comes throughout the text is a, a, an inability in a conscious uh, decoupling from the rest of the global community in that and in domestically uh, from criminals in that these are an other that exist outside of civil society and sh- warrant treatment that we don't accept among civil society mm-hmm. and and like the what we know throughout history is that the the delineations between who's inside society and who's outside of society aren't the kind of you know rigorous scientific and sociological positive or like constructive ideas that might actually make that somewhat functional it's rooted in the same imperialistic and racist uh, structures that everything else is Right. I mean, she talks about how violence is a way to enforce who's within and outside of the society. So even if, even if it's not a spoken thing, right? I mean, although obviously we have plenty of examples of rhetoric that lets us know who's in and who's out. Um, but it's the enactment of the constant violence that instills the idea within people's heads that, okay, this is the other, this is the not society, right? Like this is, these are the people that are not part of the society and thus warrant if, you know, they deserve the treatment that they receive in some way. Um, the only way I, to get is, them to our level is to give them this treatment in many ways. Right. Like we, we have to abuse them. Otherwise they'll never respect, you know, freedom and democracy. <laughs> right. Or, or like in the U S case, you know, they'll never respect just basic society. Like being, what did they say? Productive members of society is what's mm-hmm. always said about people who are quote unquote criminals. Um, so the idea of prison is to make them, to mold them into quote unquote productive members of society as if prior to that, prior to incarceration, prior to the violence of incarceration, that they were not productive in some way, like just by virtue of having committed a crime, or even if they didn't commit a crime, but they find themselves in prison. The idea is that the assumption is that before that, that punishment, they were not productive, whatever that means. Paying them a dollar to go risk their lives fighting fires, a dollar an hour or whatever to do that, it's just makes sense. I mean, well, wouldn't does I mean we're trying to make them productive members of society, and it's like and it saves us money. It's like this is just great economics and and good sociology. It's like that that's the conclusion that it leads them to, and it's like well, Mm -hmm. no, that that that's re-enslavement essentially. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is, Um, and I. 
something that you mentioned as well, I mean, we were talking a lot about um, the Clinton era and then a bit about, you know, some of the things that Obama that happened during the Obama administration that were precursors um, to, you know, institutional practices that we see now, or if not, you know, now they're just continuations of them. Um, but I think that, you know, one of the things that looking forward that I, I foresee now as being a problem that's going to become more accelerated and damaging in the future is definitely this reliance on trust in and if not like applauding of um, members of the the intelligence community. Um, one of the things I keep seeing is like people who are actually former CIA or former FBI operatives actually running for office in the Democratic Party. And I think that that's incredibly dangerous. Um, it's something that I've seen. It's sort of a newish thing. I mean, I know that the Democrats have never been like communist or something, but I think that there is, I don't, I don't have like, I guess what I'm saying is I don't have like a idealistic or idyllic version of, of what the Democrats were before this time that we're in now. But I do think mm -hmm. that this emphasis and trust in um, the intelligence community that I see really like very prevalent in among Democrats and democratic rhetoric is dangerous. And I think something that's going to get worse with time, I feel like it's signaling towards something in the future that we're going to have to be really careful about and wary of and we should become more prepared for you know um, uh, exactly when i was just like when comey and M or muller were like uh, popular names in democratic circles and like were being lauded and such i was just like wait you mean the ones that like ran the massive illegal criminal uh like domestic like surveillance thing the ones that like lied to congress like those people are the ones that you're counting on writing a reliable report in which you're going to hold this other guy accountable. Like right. where, where, well, what? <laughs> like, and they never really uh, reconciled that and they just, right. they just ignored it and moved on. And it's strange because you'll see in the same breath, someone being like this black identity extremist stuff is garbage. But then at the same time being like, you know, Comey's going to save the country. Like, it, it's a very stir. Mueller's going to save the country. And I'm like, don't mm -hmm. you realize that Mueller and Comey are FBI? Like, what do you, who, like, and, and Comey's actually the one who came up with the quote unquote Ferguson effect, this, this completely idiotic idea that protesting the police makes the police become more aggressive. Um, and then, or, or I think in the specifics of the Ferguson effect, it's like, they don't do their job as well or something. Like they can't, they're not capable of doing their job properly mm -hmm. uh, was the argument. And I'm like... <laughs> Okay, like it's just it's it's ridiculous, but I think that sometimes there's a gap in the reality, with like of what these the people in these agencies do and what these agencies do, um, and I think that Davis does a really good job of reminding us of how these organ these institutions are inherently violent, um, and you know just help reinforce the carceral system that we have in the states, but abroad, right? Um, at least the CIA, the FBI does it here, the CIA does it abroad, but there's a, a lot of overlap, um, especially when we have seen um, following the, world, the, the uh, attacks in 2000, 2001, excuse me, 9-11. After that, with the Patriot Act um, and the expansion of the war on terror, the, the line between domestic and foreign is blurred um, because they use terrorism as a way to kind of implicate domestic acts of of protest and subversion which is what you were hinting at earlier when you said you know a lot of these laws um were based as well on um a means of like controlling activists right criminalizing activist groups and things like that um the other thing i just wanted to add thinking back about clinton clinton's era 
Um, I thought it was a really fascinating intervention when she talks about the the welfare cuts, um, which, you know, I'm sure many people remember, like from the 2016 election, this was coming up a lot, like um, under Clinton, under Bill Clinton, there were welfare cuts that Hillary Clinton advocated for. Um, so that's why it was coming up in that election. But I remember um, and one of the things that Davis talks about in the text is the simple fact that like we are seeing of the prison population, women is like the, the women, incarcerated women um, is the fastest rising number of incarcerated people in this country. Um, in terms of the rate of growth. And she pins a lot of this rise of supposed criminality, or at least the, you know, the assignment of criminality onto these women. Um, she connects it to the cuts in welfare. And she basically argues in short that, you know, they were left without many opportunities um, that some of this, uh, this legislation had provided prior to it being cut. And so these women were left to sort of fend for themselves without any institutional support or safety nets. And some of them um, look to activities that are criminalized, whether it's drug sales or, you know, sex work or whatever, um, to, to support themselves and their families. And then they were sent to jail as a result of that, you know, instead of, instead of people sort of considering the ways that these economic changes completely shifted the way that they, they had to live their lives, um, they were just punished, you know. Um, punished for attempting to survive. And I think that there's there's a real lack, I guess, of discussions around what it means to be a woman in prison. Um, I think it's somewhat even glamorized because we have things like Orange is the New Black and like all these lockup type shows. And like, I don't know, like there's a show now where people are like dating in prison or something. And I think that those shows, while they on the one hand humanize or purport to humanize incarcerated people, they also have a tendency to trivialize what happens to them and the reality that people face when they're in prison. Um, and, you know, like the extreme separation anxiety that they must go through, deprivation that they go through, you know, like lack of resources and basic needs being met. I mean, there's so many things that are just not covered um, by these shows and it looks like it's fun or a joke. Um, and it's not. And I think that that's, that's something she doesn't talk about, obviously, because these shows did not exist when she wrote this or when she had this, these interviews. But I think it's fascinating also the way that nowadays a sort of cheapening of the experience of in being incarcerated also serves to actively separate us from the experience. It's like we can laugh at them. We can laugh at their, their, what's happening. Oh, it's funny. It's cute. And then we forget the reality, right? Like, of course, there are going to be light moments in prison, but what they have to deal with in large part is not light. It's not funny. It's, and so it's kind of, it's like this ironic process of trying to, or I don't know if they're, they're trying to make money. They're not trying to humanize them, but it comes across as like trying to humanize incarcerated people when in actuality, they're just turning them into turning them for a profit, you know? Um, yeah. Humanization, humanization in the sense that like, you know, they humanize a celebrity to commodify them. So that like, exactly. They create a character and then try try to make that character seem human and real, just so that they can sell it. Not not to uh, amplify any sort of uh, empathetic uh, reaction towards the humanity of either the character or the actual individual portraying the character, like right. uh, whoever, whichever the artist may be. Which is like, and you'll hear you hear a lot of new age artists basically kind of talk about this in different mo different moments where they'll essentially say something to the effect of oh well no you know the th that stage name is a character i'm somebody different and 
it's like well not to society to society you and that stage character are one and the same and so like that's and, and like celebrities dealing with that conflict of how they see themselves individually versus how society sees them uh, causes a lot of internal things and results in a, a variety of reactions from a variety of celebrities but like i think that it captures a very real aspect of what we uh, or tension that's created within people by these kind of by the how we commodify everything but including kind of the personalities and in this case as you mentioned the kind of prison life and the example i think of is like locked up where it was it was more of the human humanizing side versus the reality show side but still it's like how can i don't i don't understand how the producers of that show could walk away from that and not be ashamed for the network that they work on that they, they don't talk about that every day and the horrificness and the the inhumanity and all the things that they sat and witnessed and watched it's like they saw firsthand how broken the system is and how dehumanizing and how like counterproductive it was it like even our purported uh goals of eventually finding some way to reintegrate these people in society they're, they're, these prisons don't even have a functional mechanism to do that let alone do a good job of it and so like we know is like with prisons uh, like with the you know the black experience in the country is like everybody knows it's broken nobody wants to be a prisoner nobody wants to be like or like you know like no white person wants to be black and no white person wants to be criminalized but they don't want to do anything or taking on any of the challenges to confront the issues in such a way that we can actually address the systemic issues, the systemic problems that criminalize so many people and cause so much suffering. It's like, at best, we can get a lip service. It's like, well, I agree, that is horrible. And it's like, well, that's nice. Now, what are we going to do? And mm -hmm. they're like, well, I'm, I, I have brunch to get to, so that's what I'm going to do. I, I don't know what's on your schedule. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's not how this, this is how it works. And I think, uh, I think we'll touch on it again, but it's like, uh, I, we should probably touch more on the imperialism side of it, but I think uh, towards the end we'll want to wrap up with kind of like abolition uh, and what that means. And she talks yeah. about how it's not just taking a, an axe to the walls of the prison, but building something. But I think we should. I think imperialism makes sense to transition towards. Sure, go ahead. Uh, I guess just uh, we've talked about a bit of it so far, but that uh, the global war, she says the global war against terrorists justified with ideas about the superiority of U.S. democracy and says that it's equally dangerous to, to assume she's talking about feminism in this part, but uh, that U.S. feminism, whether liberal or radical, is superior to feminisms around the world. And uh, it just kind of what I captured out of uh, this theme of what she was talking about was how the supremacy like in, in domestically it's white supremacy uh, internationally it's uh, u.s western supremacy globally and so like it it, it expands from there but uh, this kind of superiority uh, feeling that we have that we're the best feminists we're the best on race we're the best like we're the most and the idea that we could learn from uh, you know, like that Muslim women could have something to offer feminists about women's rights is like a, a ridiculous notion in most in many feminist circles, even even on the left in the United States. Yet we represent ourselves as the the peak of feminism. And you mentioned before uh, with democracy, how it's been commodified and that essentially U.S. democracy is superior 
to any other form of democratic control or governance despite you know the reality of that not matching up just when we compare ourselves to other democracies in existence but then uh from a larger philosophical and ideological perspective where we have to if we're a part of a global community that recognizes that we have to take uh, advice and consideration of that community's experiences and perceptions which we're not really prepared for and so like the the kind of the superiority and supremacist notions that we see domestically and imperially are uh, compounding and uh, they are, I'll just go with compounding on each other in that they build on each other and reinforce one another and justify one another. And so as, as we talked about how the, the criminalization of, in, of slaves post the Civil War in order to keep the same kind of punitive measure, uh, punishments like the death penalty and such in ways that it applied to them and not us uh, is the same uh, way it expands and it is carried over internationally to the criminalization, the, the inferiority of these people not deserving of uh, the same kind of uh, dignity and respect that citizens of this country are. And, uh, mentions uh alberto gonzalez the former attorney general who couldn't remember about half of his uh, time as being the attorney general uh said uh, the geneva conventions as too quaint to be applicable to illegal combatants and it's like so like illegal combatants or enemy combatants was the international expansion of criminal and mm -hmm. terrorist is another example of that so like so that we can strip them of their humanity and uh, participation in a global society and instead put them outside of even like you know liberal or uh, progressive ideas of a global society that there's still this outside group and these are part of them because of uh, this aspect of their you know existence and uh, rather than you know for instance the some of the examinations that came later on uh, kind of uh, during this moment after Abu Ghraib and then the years following where it's like well wait do you think that maybe when obama uh nine out of the ten people that are killed by a bomb weren't the target that the you know 90 other family members of those nine innocent people were killed might become terrorists like and that they might be legitimate to to declare the united states their enemy because the united states blew up their family because they were in proximity to somebody that they were aiming at sort of like the the kind of the reframing of the of what how and why these people why somebody is criminalized or is a terrorist or whatever is critical i think in uh regaining a sense of global community where we recognize the dignity and humanity of all people and don't think that uh you know civil rights should stop at some artificial borderline I mean, on a similar note, what ends up happening too, and she talks about this, is that the entire country becomes indicted in the process, right? The entire society does. So it's not just a matter of, oh, Saddam Hussein is a bad guy and did this and this, right? Or fill in the blank leader that the U.S. has chosen to bomb or, you know, do whatever to. That entire, the society and upon which that person was the ruler or president or whatever becomes also criminalized, right? It just automatically criminalized. Um, so I remember 
she talks somewhat about Osama bin Laden and how Bush and then later Obama was saying that they wanted to get him dead or alive and how that kind of language of like wild, wild west, you know, cowboy versus indigenous people's situation was very comparable. Um, she says, you know, she uses this example in the text. And I think that that those parallels are really important because she she tends to draw connections between, um, you know, early, early U.S. foundational violence to continual expansion of U.S. border and control through imperialism to that same kind of violence. Um, and so, like, I mean, because I remember, for example, when 9-11 happened and they were like, oh, Al-Qaeda did this. And then it was like, OK, Osama bin Laden's over Al-Qaeda. So I was like, OK, so why are we bombing all of Afghanistan? Right. Why are we imprisoning mm -hmm all of the people like why are people going after individuals who are not involved in this in any way and you know of course in the in the text she talks about as well how like feminism is used as a or at least a very corrupted idea of feminism is used to legitimize these kinds of things just like a corrupted idea of democracy is used to legitimize these types of things um, but i think that that expansion is very comparable to the criminality that's assigned upon black people in this country um, you know, like just automatically assume that everyone involved in the country agrees with what Osama bin Laden did and believes, and therefore they too are criminal automatically. Or like, even if you look at uh, Guantanamo Bay, people who are, are still like, it's crazy to me that that still exists at all. Like just the right. idea, it still exists. Um, but she mentions that how it's early in its earliest days, um, those prisons were used to house um, immigrants who had HIV AIDS who were coming from Haiti. and the idea is again, instead of treating them, instead of accepting them and get, giving them medical care, the idea was to punish them, to have to detain them, to, to and then subsequently to use that site as a space of torture. Many and and in many cases against people who are innocent, like so many of the people at Guantanamo Bay, they still don't have attorneys. They're not given habeas corpus, so it's like there's no way of even proving that they didn't do anything because I've read that in some cases they were just. The U.S. military was just picking up anyone who was like a teenager or older in certain cases, just like sweet doing sweeps um, without any evidence that they had committed any acts of terrorism or crime. You know, um, imagine the, the police without even the slightest bit of over oversight uh, when these, in some of these right. situations like, like what just... does that sound like? You know, like that sounds really familiar, doesn't it? Like these these kinds of the acts that our military and government engages in abroad are literally like they're literally. You know, what we have in the U.S. is a microcosm of then what we expand elsewhere um, and that kind of violence. And when when you're implicating an entire country, when you're implicating an entire group of people on the basis of a crime that you don't even necessarily have proof of, you know, um, like the, in the case of Iraq, literally, that was the case. Right. There was the idea that there were, ma you know, weapons of mass destruction. That was a crime that did not happen. And then the entire country paid for it and is continuing to pay for it. So it's and then just, Bush makes a joke at the press correspondence center about not finding the weapons like that. Right. It, it's able to, we're able to laugh at that despite the and hundreds of thousands of Iraqi civilians that died. Right. And, and I think the general American public, and now if you think about the mainstream media as, as an arm of the state, right. Um, it, it benefits from that and it, it doesn't ever have to pay its debt to that society. It's because precisely because that society is automatically marked as criminal. You know, so there's no need for us to go and, you know, to, to say I'm sorry or to fix anything that this country damaged there or 
to attempt to let them establish their own government or what none of that is even in talks none of those people were ever punished who were the architects of this kind of violence because it's seen as a given right they are seen mm -hmm. these people abroad in iraq in afghanistan in syria wherever else are seen as automatic criminals thus therefore deserving of the punishment that our country mets upon them you know it's just it's it's i don't know reading it just again reinforces ideas that i think many of us on the left already hold but it's just exciting to see it in print in one place <laughs> you know like mm -hmm. it's not a tweet it's a it's a set of interviews and it's very clear and i think that that sometimes just like reinforces okay i'm not i'm not losing my mind this is this is what's happening you know um and and so that's always reassuring i think in a lot of ways um the other part that mm -hmm. i wanted to just touch on really quickly is on the same page you were on page 47 when you were reading that i believe um about the assumptions of feminism um i think one of the parts as well in that same paragraph middle of page 20 of uh, 47 excuse me she says that it seems to me that those of us here in the US who are interested in a transnational feminist project would better would better serve the cause of freedom by asking questions rather than making proposals. And I think that that too is something that can be applied well beyond the idea of feminism, but in general, what does it mean to be an internationalist um, on the left, right? And what kind of engagement do we wanna have with the rest of the world if we're telling the rest of the world what to do instead of listening? instead of taking notes and engaging and like exchanging ideas. Um, because I think as, as things have gotten better, I would say for sure um, in the US in terms of the way we engage, not, not as a country, but like people on the left, right? I think, I think leftists in the US are getting better about these issues, but I still think there's a degree to which we have, even within our, even within like, let's take the international aspect out of it completely and talk about just domestic stuff, right? Like you still have a certain sect of white leftists who think that it's their job to tell people of color how to vote and how to act and what to believe. And I think arguably there's also a set of people of color on the left who do the same thing, right? I've, I'm not gonna name names, but I remember seeing the other day an interview where um, there's a person who's like black and over a leftist organization or a, attempting to build a leftist organization who basically said we want to go into the hood and educate people on socialism and i'm like why are you making the presumption why are you assuming that people in the hood don't know what socialism is or don't already have interests that are well, well rooted in left ideology and practice why are you making the assumption that they don't know these things already right and that you need to educate them you got to come from the top down to like tell them how it is and i think that that is a continual problem that that just like is a problem in all in all in our society but also both domestically and internationally that like we have to do some listening and instead of going into a place and like evangelizing people need to understand that they have to hear the needs of that community first i mean again it goes back to freddy right mm -hmm. like there's a whole chapter where he's like this is how you do this you don't go into a community assuming you know what they need and want you go in and you listen first right you go in and you talk to people and you have them tell you what they need and then you respond accordingly and you incorporate them. You have them become the leaders. You don't lead them, you know? And I think that that is essential in any sort of movement. Um, I also really quickly, cause I know I've been talking a lot. I wanna just, I wanna emphasize something that she said at the end that I think connects back to this. 
she says later on at the end, basically when she's asked, you know, like, where do we go from here, <laughs> right? Like, what do we do? And I think her reflections on, you know, even though this book is like 14 years old now, I think her reflections on mobilization versus demonstration versus organizing is really important um, because she basically says that like, we're very good at getting people out in the street, right? We're good at getting everybody together. And now with technology expanding, we're good at mobilizing, right? So we're good at demonstrating, we're good at calling everybody up, having them rally. But then when it comes to organizing, we are lacking, right? And because the, mm -hmm. the interviewer was asking her, you know, like what's different about movements now and why does she think that some of them are less successful or whatever? Um, and I think that that's really key. And I think part of, again, that organizing aspect requires putting in the work to actually listen and to engage people on their level and to not assume that you know more than them and that you're gonna teach them something, right? Um, and that you can actually learn from them. And I, I, you know, I hate to see this kind of behavior replicated among leftists who I think maybe have good intentions, but who don't realize that what they're doing is just engaging in like a very patronizing, patriarchal even practice. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings about where where things are going right now. I'm not an expert by any means. You know, I'm just like sitting here reading stuff and talking about it. But I just mm -hmm. mean by that, I mean that like I just I wish I did see more actual community engagement from some people who if, at least if you purport to be a leader of an organization and if you want to found an organization, you got to do organizing. Right. I don't I don't purport to be the leader of an organization or a political party or any of that. I'm just. I just have a podcast and I'm just doing a PhD. But I think for those who are interested in that kind of leadership, they have to be humble enough to recognize that if you want to lead a left organization, you have to also be engaged and listen. And that is key. And I don't think, and it's a key part of organizing. And I don't think people necessarily want to do that because it's harder. It's much harder to do that than to like tweet something, you know? Well, yeah, website. you're you're going to bump into people that disagree with you and you can't when you're organizing people, you can't just go off on them. It's like you can right. you, you can't can block be, them. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, exactly. You can you can be a smart aleck and block people on Twitter, but you can't do that when you're organizing a community. That's not how it works. It's like right. you have to you have to communicate and you have to uh, come to, you know, common sets of understandings. And, and like it's not going to be possible with everybody and you'll have to, you know find ways to uh, move around people and such but it's like it's not it, twitter engagement is not social engagement at the face-to-face -face level they're, they're different yeah. things with different uh kind of patterns that people follow and and ways that people enter the engagement from the beginning uh one of the things that like that you remind me of and that i think was really important is that like the fights are constant and ongoing and she stresses you know it's like the victories don't demand perpetuation you know it's like just because we won brown versus board and desegregated schools doesn't mean that we don't have to keep fighting every day to keep them or to continue to desegregate them we know that that's the case because as the the focus wore off segregation has increased and some places are even more segregated now than they were then it's like so like yes that victory was won but victory in itself is just that. And it's like, it's daily struggle to 
to perpetuate and maintain those victories. And, and mm-hmm. we've seen that that was a similar case with the Civil War and the end of slavery and how that took, you know, decades, depending on what town you were in to even actually just tell the slaves they weren't slaves anymore. And like some of some of them, one town in particular took like more than a century, I think, before people found out. And so like there's that aspect, but then also that we like we have to always keep fighting because there's the the other side doesn't just give up when they lose. You know, it's like it, that's not how it works. They 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 see it as a temporary setback, and these are already temporarily embarrassed millionaires and billionaires as it is. But they see it as a setback and that something that to be rewon. And we see this with the Republicans a lot, where they'll keep fighting over the Obamacare was a good example. Is like they lost that and spent the next eight years fighting it. <laughs> like, and so it was like. And, and it's over and over. So it's like, I think sometimes people think that we get a victory, we get a win, that then it should just always be treated as if that, that win is, a, is, is granted and respected. And it's like, that's not, how, that's not how it works out in this country. The kind of other aspect I think that you reminded me of is uh, that like, uh, to go back to the imperialism part of it and uh, Americanism democracy is like and commodification of democracies like the US democracy is legitimate and the best so we need to sell it and gift it whatever to the rest of the world and that mm-hmm. it's also synonymous she mentions it's also synonymous with capitalism and uh, like and capitalism's ability to roam the glo- globe has in fact has has a, a compounding effect with our desire to impose democracy around the, our American version of democracy around the world and so that it can function within that capitalistic system. And it, we know that the naturally exploitive, uh, uh, I guess, uh, tendencies of capitalism will result in the exploitation, further exploitation of these countries that we gift our version of democracy because the, it's always going to be subservient to us. It's never going to, our democracy isn't going to take advice from their democracy. That's, that's right. not how, that's not how it works. And you see the constant resistance to global organizations like the UN or human rights or uh, like uh, various, the, the Geneva conventions as mentioned earlier with uh, Gonzalez, who thought they were too, qu- too quaint to apply to those people. It's like mm-hmm. those are fine for these people, but not for those people. And like for it's Europe like, and America, but not for anyone else. <laughs> exactly. If we ever get in a spat with Europe, it's like, yeah, we're going to need to use these Geneva Conventions, not for those 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 brown people over there. Those, they don't apply. They don't understand the nuances and the sophistication of our democracy and our laws. It's like right. that, but that, and it, it's the the I guess uh, what's the word I'm looking for. Uh, not superiority, but you know the the narcissism or like self-importance builds she uses on. Narciss- I think narcissism is good. She uses it throughout. Actually, she mentions that as yeah how it, she frames it. You know how she frames U.S. policy abroad. It, it it's it's self-assured that like it it re- self-reinforcing in that we're the best because we're the best and we have to be the best. So whatever we do is the best. And it was like, uh, so it, however it, it, we, because the anus, right? It's... Exactly. However we <laughs> implement, whatever it takes for us to give you democracy, is what is necessary and good. So right. if we have to bomb you into submission, kill women and children, bomb school buses, 
whatever it is, you know, starve children in Yemen, whatever it is, in order to get you guys on board with the righteousness of American democracy, any there, there are no rules essentially. It, it's and the only rules are the ones that we make for ourselves, which we can break at any time and justify with any reason. Mm-hmm. And so it, it becomes this, and and is is reflective of the domestic policy of you know it's like we we'll, we can post hoc justify our treatment of these criminals uh, because they're criminals. So whatever whatever happens after they've been criminal doesn't matter because they were criminals before that. And so whatever happens to these Middle Eastern people doesn't matter because they weren't democratic before that. So until they're an de- American democracy, what happens to these people isn't, they don't deserve habeas corpus. They don't deserve dignity and human rights. And it's always they, a goalpost. Right? Mm-hmm, go I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, it's always a goalpost that moves, right? Because have these places like sometimes already had democracy, like at least the textbook version of what we call it, right? Or they may have had like councils by, based on city or municipality or whatever that were operating as democratic um, like a textbook democracies, but we ignored that. And then we said, no, that's not that democracy, this democracy. Right. But then on right. top of that, even if, even if you get to the point where you're like infinitely close to whatever, cause that's the other thing, like democracy in the U S case is never fully defined. Like it's mm-hmm. kind of like how terrorism also operates. Like it's never fully defined in a clear way that's applicable in all cases. It's always like this vague idea. And so there's Whiteness. never a way to reach it. There's never a way to reach democracy with a capital d in the american in the u.s sense but there's also if you do reach it or if you already had it we say no 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 not that <laughs> like let's keep going with this war until you get it and and until that's it, why it's obviously a farce you know it's exactly bullshit. and it becomes abundantly clear you know when the for instance in the name of democracy they they oust a democratically elected leader to replace them right. with a, a military dictator who didn't get voted in at all for democracy right. <laughs> like yeah. wait a minute that that is like it doesn't even and it's the same thing and it's again reflective of the domestic thing of you know uh like this person needs to be a contributing member of society so we're going to lock them in a cage where they can't do that right <laughs> like, or ever right. learn how to exactly. <laughs> and who's so, rehabilitating them who's teaching them to be productive members like prison guards who abuse them like Mm, it, not yeah it it doesn't it doesn't pass a smell test or even you know, like you know just on a cursory glance it's like well wait a minute this just doesn't make sense and then the deeper you go it is, there's not any sort of rationalized there's not any sort of justification or like underlying logic there's like oh okay no well, now i see how that no it just gets worse and worse right. and less cohesive and less uh, sensible and and less logical less humane less ever it just gets perpetually worse the deeper you look exactly so on that note i hate to be the bearer of bad news but uh i've got to end the show right now i have to go but for our next episode we're actually going to talk a bit about uh davis's discussion of the distortion of identity politics for the sake of conservative goals um we're also going to talk about her engagement with frederick Douglass and du bois which is like a super fascinating debate that i didn't really know that much about um so i think it's fa- it's like great how she covers it in the text but apparently also um wrote about this when she herself was incarcerated um so we're definitely going to get into that and also just kind of where she is today i i think it's going to be worth some spending some time on that um for those of you who may 
have been paying attention to what she's been up to. Some may, some have actually called her, uh, you know, they've, they've, in, they've, they've basically implied that she's sold out a little bit politically. So we're going to talk about that and what that means um, in the next episode, the next installment of this reading revolution discussion. Um, but Richard, as always, thank you so much for your well, I time. appreciate you getting it, getting it out with me. I, I know you've been <laughs> like, uh, I can only imagine. And thankfully I'll, I won't have to experience it. <laughs> but like, I, I can only imagine the, and I I'm, and extremely grateful and thankful for the opportunity in general and then that you're able to to grit through and make it and i just i'll take this moment also just uh thankful for all the new patrons oh yeah and, and thankful for like just being able to uh be able to still be able to express these ideas you know it's like uh right now. It. yeah exactly <laughs> and it's, it's weird because sometimes it's easier to do it on a podcast than it is to do it to someone like someone's face whether they're a stranger or uh, an acquaintance or a friend and so uh expressing these ideas uh, having these conversations doing having these discussions and uh it helps me integrate them into my day-to-day -day life and to, to when i see a worker in a situation where like i i can stand up for them against a, a like a superior who's uh, uh kind of doing something is like i i can find little things that i can do that help me make sure that like keep me remind keep remind me that it's a daily struggle and that mm -hmm. the, the 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 struggles are all around us and that we're we that we have solidarity in many of them and identifying and recognizing and drawing attention to the contradictions in people's lives and the advantages of solidarity is something that we can do day in our daily lives as well as in projects like this or on Twitter or wherever else. And so like, uh, I'm just incredibly grateful and thankful for all of this. So I just yeah. I was, I wanted to piggyback on that and say that yes, huge thank you to all the new patrons. We got like a huge, a big bump in patrons on Patreon the other day. Like I got not the other day, but like over the past two weeks or so. Um, so, Big ups to all the new patrons. I hope you're enjoying what you've been listening to. Um, but as always, like I always have to emphasize this, everything that we provide, whether it's podcasts, reading materials, whatever, is always free and will continue to be free. So for those of you who do have the extra dollar or $5 a month to contribute, we really, really appreciate it because it helps us pay for all the behind the scenes stuff like um, you know, buying a mic or paying for web storage and things like that. And I've actually, for those of you who... Uh, may not have seen it if you go to our patreon page which also there all of the um all of the entries on our patreon page are also open to the public so you can see that i provide a breakdown of like where your money goes what we do with your money um i pay richard i pay our assistants i pay our guests um and we also again like pay for web storage pay for you know things like soundcloud and spreaker and whatnot so that we can remain accessible to people who use different providers for that, for their podcasts and things like that. Um, so yeah, we really appreciate everything you can give. And for those of you who are not able to give uh, with dollars, we certainly always appreciate a retweet. Very, we've gotten, I just want to say too, we've been getting some really nice tweets lately, like so, so nice and like heartfelt. And I'm just like, oh, maybe I'm emotional because I'm pregnant, but I'm like, oh, it's so sweet. You know, like it's been very, very nice. So we really appreciate all of you who, 
follow the project and listen to the podcast and who can contribute in whatever way you can, um, you know, be that monetary or just by retweeting or leaving a comment or telling a friend or family member about the show. Um, and yeah, we hope to continue moving in this direction. Um, and yeah, again, thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. Thanks to the listeners and uh, have a good one. And thank you for listening to the Left Pocket Project podcast. As per usual, you can find us by checking out Left POC, and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C on Twitter, SoundCloud, Facebook, iTunes, YouTube, and wherever you get your social media and podcast fix. Um, also, be sure to check out the Patreon page, and that's patreon.com slash leftpoc, where you can get a ton of free books and other materials, as well as donate to the podcast and the project by offering us a dollar or more per month to keep the show running. Thank you so much, and have a good one. Thank you.